Psalm 138, please notice here verse number one. I want to read the eight verses of this psalm. The Bible says here, Psalm 138, I will praise thee with my whole heart. Before the gods will I sing praise unto thee. I will worship towards thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. In the day when I cried, thou answerest me, and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. All the kings of the earth shall praise thee, O Lord, when they hear the words of thy mouth. Yea, they shall sing in the ways of the Lord, for great is the glory of the Lord. For though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly, but the proud he knoweth afar off. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, Thou wilt revive me. Thou shalt stretch forth thine hand against the wrath of mine enemies, and thy right hand shall save me. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine hands. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this moment and time that you have ordained. You have brought each one that is here today and uh, they are now under the sound of the Word of God. This is not necessarily the sound of a preacher's words, though I may speak these words, but Lord, we desire for your words to come forth, to penetrate the hearts of your people, and may it be that your people would make decisions based upon what you have for them, what you command of them, what you ask of them, and uh, guide us, and may our attention be upon your words here today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to notice verse number one, how this opens up. And really, verse number one opens up like many of the Psalms open up, and it's with the aspect of praise and worship for God. David not only wants you and I to know that he is praising God, but he is doing so with his whole heart. When we sang those songs a few moments ago, Did you praise God with all your heart? You know, I have the advantage of standing up here and watching some of you, and I won't make any comments, all right, on what I see. But truthfully, when we come to church, we ought to praise God with all of our heart and all of our soul. But then David says that he's going to praise God in the presence of all other gods, Now, David's not giving accolades, if you will, to all the other gods. Notice it's small, Jesus is listed. But he's saying here that God Jehovah must be acknowledged above anything else that is called God. When you come in and worship in God's house, are you able to lift up your voice and lift up your heart before God? Because in the presence of all other things that want to have first place in your life, can you truly say, God, you have first place in my life. You're above money. You're above power. You're above the God of success. Whatever God it might be, God, you alone deserve my praise. So David then says in verse number number two that he's directing here that praise towards God's holy temple, his house. And he talks about the loving kindness of God and the truth of God. And then there is an interesting statement that is made 
at the end of verse number two, David says, for thou hast magnified thy word, notice these next words here, above thy name, above all thy name. Now hold on just a second. Are we making now a comparison? Are we the ones who are born again and know about the name of God? Does that mean now we just kind of take the name of God and we put it down a little bit and we we take God's word and we magnify it? Well, there is something to be said about God's name, is there not? God's name is a very powerful name. Think about all that is to be done in the name of God. John 14, 13 tells us that we're to pray in his name. We are to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We're not to take the name of the Lord in vain, Exodus 20 tells us. But we look at the various names that are given, and we are enriched as believers when we find the the solace in the name of God. We see the name of God, Elohim. And we understand that, that, that phrase, the, the El part, we put it with El Elyon, the Most High God, or El Shaddai, the, that uh, Supreme God. Or we take the name of Jehovah and we recognize the beauty of who God is. There is so many wonderful, rich things to gather about the name of God. No wonder the Proverbs writer says that he ran into the name of God like it was a strong tower. Because God's name is certainly that. But I believe when David is saying here that God's word is to be magnified above his name, it's not making a comparison. What God is really giving here through David is an understanding of God's name has a reference to his authority or his reputation. You see, there are certain people that you may know in the workforce in your neighborhood, whose name has a certain connotation with it. Can I say that God's name has a certain connotation with it? Whether we think of grandiose, awesome, wonderful, faithful, all of those things apply to God, and that's the very name of God. And I believe that when David writes these words, that God's word is to be magnified above all thy name, he's not saying as a comparison, all right? Let's take God's word and let's go to take God's name and put it down. No, what he's saying is this. In these days that the Bible was written, it was very easy for a ruler, a king, to go ahead and change some law that had been written, and he would use his influence or power to change that. You know what David's saying here? God is not going to change his word. Though he has all power and all influence and all authority to say, you know what, I'm going to change this now. God is saying, I've magnified my word above all of my influence and power and authority. And I'm here to tell you something. God's word is great. God's word is to be magnified in such a way that even God says 
the promises that I make, I'll not go, I'll not go back on. Now, considering here today about the magnification of God's Word, the greatness of God's Word, let's open up this chapter just a little bit and get some insight about that greatness of God's Word. First of all, number one, when we think about God's Word and its greatness, it is great because it records for me how good God is. I remember years ago, now you're going to have to talk to me a little bit, all right? Can you say amen? amen? All right, that was a good practice. I want you to try it one more time. Say amen. amen. All right, wonderful. Talk to me now, all right? That way I feel like I'm getting into the sermon just a little bit. Now, God's good, is he not? Yes. Amen, all right. I remember years ago going out to the prison, I would preach out there, and I would, I remember the first time I made this statement, I said, God is good, and all of a sudden I heard this shout back, all the time. And then they said, all the time, and I was supposed to say, God is good. And I love that, because truly, God is good. And notice how David tells us that God is good. He uses two words here. He talks about God's loving kindness, and he talks about God's truth. Now, God's loving kindness has to do with his unfailing love, his unfailing kindness that is shown to us. But his truth has to do with the fact that God is faithful to his word. Amen. He's reliable. He is trustworthy. And I believe that David, and in fact, I have a strong belief that this psalm is written towards the end of David's life. David's probably sitting on his throne, and he's reflecting back on all the things that God had done for him. In fact, he's, he's probably thinking in his mind all the way back to those words that were recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 7, how God had made some wonderful promises to David about David being on the throne and how God would give him a name and how God would bless his house and his kingdom. And I bet you David's sitting on the throne, he's saying to himself, I can't believe all of the things that have transpired in my life over all these years, and God has been faithful to his word. And you know what David says? God is good. His loving kindness, his truth has been shown over and over to me. How has God recorded his goodness in your life? I want to say to you that if you take a moment and you go through the Word of God, you can see promise after promise after promise that God has fulfilled in your life, and all that you have to do is be able to say, God, you are good. Now, let me hasten to say this. Satan, who is the adversary, always loves to accentuate the negative, does he not? Oh my, how many times throughout the week we get this little urge to be negative, to think negative, to kind of dwell on all the bad. But I want to tell you something, no matter how bad things get, no matter how awful things are in your life, God is good and he's good all the time. What a powerful thing to think about God's goodness and what he's done for us. 
And when I think about the promises of God that are given to us in His Word, all I can say is God is good. I'm going to put a few verses up on the screen. I want you to see these verses. Notice this promise or this Word of God in Matthew 11:28 and 29. God says here, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls." Notice here, if you're weighed down today, you're under the burden of sin, you're under certain uh, cares of this world, guess what the promise of God is? Come unto me and I'll give you the rest that you need. Notice Philippians chapter 4 verses 6 through 7. He says here, be careful for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now notice this. And the peace of God which passes all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. You know what the beauty is? That sometimes when we go through things in our life and we give those things to God, God gives us a peace that we cannot explain and that we often don't understand. But guess what? God comes through and he's good all the time, is he not? Think about this verse in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. I love this. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those that are called according to his purpose. Think about this. All of the things in your life, whether it be bad things, whether it be good things, God is using it all. You say, this week was a bad week. All right, wait for this next week. It'll probably be a good week. And you know what God's doing? He's taking last week and this week, and he's putting it together because he's doing something in your life. That's the promise of God. Notice in Deuteronomy 31, 6, be strong and have a good courage. Fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that does go with thee. He will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Do you know God's not going to leave you? Oh, how many Christians say, oh, God's just forsaken me. God's left me. My friend, God's magnifying his word above his name. He promises to you he will not leave you. And therefore, you can bank on the fact that God is good and his word reinforces that. Notice point number two now. The word of God is great because it records for us that God is good. But number two, it reinforces the fact that God's strength is always available. Now, please note verse three and verse seven, if you will. Look at verse number three. David says, in the day when I cried, thou answerest me and strengthened me with strength in my soul. Look at verse 7. Though I walk in the midst of trouble, thou wilt revive me. Now observe two words that David uses. Let's just take in its simplicity of this word, the word strengthen in verse 3. And then in verse number 7, the word revive. Now, the word strengthen is a very important word. Literally, it's a very strong word, which means that God will embolden those who are weak in courage and faith. You ever been there? I have. I've been weak in courage. I've been weak in faith. And when I come before God and say, God, help me in these times, you know what God does? He strengthens me. 
But notice the word revive. It means to give life again, to bring back hope, if you will. And I believe what David is saying here is that when he lost hope, when he was weak in faith, when he had no more life in him to go further, it was then that God strengthened him. Now, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to do this. I'm going to give you just a little taste this morning. But if you were to take the Psalms and you were to find those Psalms of David and see how they're placed in the chronology of his life, that is, it makes the Psalms so rich and so beautiful when you see the time at which they were written. Let's just recourse David's life for just a moment and look at a life that sometimes lost hope. Look at a life that sometimes couldn't see through the the maze, through the clouds that were ahead of him. Let's go back to right after the time David's a, a, a young man. He's probably about 17, 18 years old. He had just killed Goliath and he become one of King Saul's generals. David becomes such a hero amongst all the Israelites because here he is as a general going out to battle. And wow, David is doing some wonderful things. And this song starts being sung about David that Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. And with that, Saul becomes very jealous. He becomes afraid and angry at David. In fact, he attempts to kill his own general. But what did David write in Psalm chapter 5, verses 1 through 3? Look at the screen here. Notice, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. What do you think David was meditating on? How I'm going to get back at Saul and murder him? No. David, I believe, was meditating upon God's words. And you read the rest of this psalm, Psalm chapter 5, and you find how David begins to put his confidence in God and his word. I'm going to skip over the next one. And I want you to notice Saul offers his daughter to David. Now, think about this. Here's a man that's wanting to kill me, and now he offers his daughter so I can marry her? But what did Saul do? What was Saul trying to do? He was trying to trap David. He was trying to utilize one of his daughters so that way he could have David killed. And what's David's concern? Well, we go to Psalm chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Notice David crying out here. He says, help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth. Think about this. All David knew about Saul when he was younger was, here's a godly man. And yet a godly man is trying to kill him. And he says, look, the godly man ceases in this person. For the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, everyone, with his neighbor. With flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. But look now in verses 6 through 7 how David responds and understands God's answer. I love this. Here David is recognizing the greatness of God's word. He says, the words of the Lord are pure words as silver tried in the furnace of earth purified seven times thou shalt keep them O lord thou shalt preserve them notice then a little bit later saul tells jonathan and all of his servants that david should be killed and david cries out to god in psalm eleven three. look at this verse on the screen if the foundations be destroyed what can the righteous do 
Then after this, Jonathan tries to figure out what his father's real intent is. And in fact, he goes to David and he assures David, David, look, I don't think that my father's going to go ahead and kill you. I, I, I don't think that's his intention at all. Jonathan brings these words to David, but then we read the next time while David is in the palace that Saul threw a javelin and missed David and David escaped and goes to his house. Now I'm going to skip the rest of the verses. I'm not going to go through here, but notice here, David escapes his house. Guess what Saul does? Saul sends his men after David. And it's at that point that David writes Psalm 59. Then David escapes to Ramah. He comes to uh, uh, the great prophet Samuel. He begins to tell him all that Saul is doing of wickedness. And it is there that David writes Psalm 7. David then flees to the place called Gath, the Philistines. He, in fact, he gets out of the country and goes to where Goliath was from. Now, you have to be pretty afraid of Saul to go to where Goliath was because you had killed Goliath some years before. And it is there David begins to tell about his fear, and he writes Psalm 56. Now, what am I sharing all this about David for? I'm sharing this about David because David had magnified the word of the Lord in such a way, David saw the greatness of God that when he faced trouble in his life, where did he go back to? The word of God. Now today, you may not be despairing of your life physically. That is, somebody's not trying to come and kill you. But there are things possibly that have transpired in your life that leave you without any emotion, you're distraught, you're discouraged, and you're weak in your faith. It could be that you've gotten some news of cancer or some type of sickness. It could be that you're facing some family problems and issues. It could be the pressure of living in this society that we live but I'm here to tell you that God gives strength when strength is needed and it's promised in his word. You ever read 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10? God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for thee. In fact, what he says is, Paul, when you're weak, I'm strong. Now, here's what we need to do. When we get weak, instead of going, oh, man, this life is tough, I can't believe this, say, all right, God's going to give me his strength because the Bible promises it. Isaiah 40, 31, boy, I hardly go through uh, in, in homes or maybe on a bumper sticker and don't see this verse, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with the wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isaiah 43, verse 2. Oh, I love this. Listen to this. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. <laughs> and through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Are you going through some fire right now? You going through some river, and man, that current wants to carry you away? I want to tell you something. Get back to the Word of God and find where God strengthens you and where He desires to strengthen you. So we see that God's Word is great because it records God's goodness. It reinforces that God's strength is available to us. 
But then number three, it reminds me that God's work in my life is never over. Look at verse number eight. I love this. I tell you, you ought to underline this in your Bible. Circle it. Do something. The Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Notice that. It's wonderful to know that God will perfect something in my life. That means he'll bring it to completion. Kind of reminds me of Jeremiah 29, verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, said the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you an expected end. Philippians chapter 1, verse number 6, being confident of this very thing, that he, that's God, which hath begun a good work in you, will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now you say, preacher, you don't understand. I get those verses, but I want you to know something. I've blown it. See, what you're saying is, I've had a failure in my life. I've had a problem. I've walked away from God. I've had doubts from God. And there have been times that you've been cold with God, that you have gotten away from God, and you say to yourself, God can't do anything with me anymore. I want, I'm going to say something to you, and I want you to get this. That is devil talk. You ready? That is devil talk. That's Satan standing on your shoulder whispering to you, it's over for you. My friend, I want to tell you something. The man David who wrote this psalm was a man who had committed an immoral act and at the end of his life, he says, the Lord will perfect that which concerneth me. Now, you have to understand what David went through after that immoral time. You read Psalm 51, and you read that confession of David to God. Oh, I love that, because every time we commit sin, we ought to say some of those same words to God. Create in me a clean heart, O God. But how did David feel? Oh, David was distraught. The Bible talks about that he had no joy. He had no gladness. In fact, he even describes it this way, that his bones were broken. What does that mean? There's pain in his life. No movement for God. And yet when he came before God and sought God's forgiveness, what did God do? God forgave him. Now I want to encourage you about something. Instead of listening to the devil that you can't do anything for God, that it's too late for you, that you've blown it already, why not come back to the Word of God and realize that God will not go back on His promises with you? He won't. He's magnified His Word above His name. But now, notice this last thing. God's Word is great because it records His goodness. It reinforces the fact that God gives strength in times of our weakness. It reminds me that God's work is never over in my life. But according to verse number 4, I see it reveals to me what will certainly happen. Look at verse number 4. All the kings of the earth, and look at this next word, shall, 
praise thee. Now the word shall is a word of assertion. It is a word that is in the future tense. In other words, what David is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is this, that there will come a day when all of the rulers on this earth who may right now not be giving praise to God, but there will come a day when they will praise God. You know, it kind of reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, that at the name of Jesus, how many knees will bow? Every knee shall bow of things in heaven and things in the earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue, listen to this, all of those rulers who said, oh, look at me and my power. There's no God out there. No. Someday that ruler's knees will bow and his mouth will open up and exclaim, you alone are worthy. Amen. Now I want to tell you something here today that there are some things that God has told us in his word that are going to happen. Now you say, preacher, you know, I've heard preachers all my life talk about the end times. Are really those things going to happen? Well, I want to just tell you something. When you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, it's very interesting. In fact, I'll just turn there, and I want to just read this to you for just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. And we're finding that today. Covetous. Now, now think about the characteristic of our society today. Covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection. That is, they've broken off the ties with those that they should be closest to. He talks about here, they're truce breakers. That is, the, the, the literal meaning of that word truce breakers is they're, they're, there's no reconciling with them at all. There's, there's no coming together. And I'll tell you what, is not our world becoming more and more splintered? And it seems like the lines that are dividing people are becoming greater and larger. And you look at the rest of these things, how it describes these perilous times that we're living in as we get closer to the time of Jesus. Let me read to you Second Peter, who also tells about these last times. In Second Peter chapter 3, here's what he says right here in verse number 3. He says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, Where's the promise of his coming? You know, again, you might be here today, or there's others that you may know who say, oh, come on, preacher, you talk about Jesus coming back. There's no Jesus coming back. I mean, I've heard about that for a long time. And what they're doing is they're scoffing that doctrine. They're mocking it. They're laughing at it and saying, that's not going to happen. But I want you to hear the truthfulness of God's Word because he says, This, that is a statement that they're making, they're ignorant. 
Because by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflown with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved under fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. You know what Peter's saying here is? There was a word that was spoken by God that God was going to judge the earth with a worldwide flood. Did it happen? Oh, that wasn't confident enough. Come on now. I know you weren't there, but did it happen? God's word said it happened. And just like God's word said that judgment would come, the same word of God tells us there's coming a judgment in the last days. I want to tell you, there's coming a judgment. Now, how's all this going to unfold? Well, I'll tell you, the first thing that's going to happen, for those of you, and maybe not everybody in here is a believer, but for those of you that are saved, there is the rapture of God's saints. His believers, that is, God's going to come to the clouds, there'll be a trump that will sound, and those that are saved and have already died are going to break out of those tombstones and are going to be up in the clouds, and those who are alive at that time will also be up in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the first thing that's going to happen is the rapture of believers. Now, I want to tell you something. Are you ready for that time? I hope so. You say, well, when I hear that trumpet, I'll go ahead and make preparation. It's too late. Can I tell you, that trumpet sounds like this, and before you can even blink, those believers are gone. Now, that's the record of God in 1 Thessalonians 4, but now I want you to notice the book of Revelation. From chapter 6 all the way through chapter 19, you know what it records for us? What happens after the rapture, the tribulation. Now you say, preacher, come on, there have been like wars and rumors of wars. There's been floods. There's been all sorts of things. I want to tell you, this afternoon, if you've not read through the book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, read it. And notice how cataclysmic these events are. Notice how worldwide they are. These are not just little localized things that are happening. These are happening all over the world during this seven-year tribulation. But at the end of that tribulation, the Bible tells us in Revelation 19, uh, Jesus, with all of those who are raptured with him, will break out of the sky. And all of those believers and all of those angels will come with him, and God will then destroy all of his enemies, and he'll bring judgment upon the earth, and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and those who know Jesus Christ will be with him forever and ever and ever. They say, how do you know all that? The Bible tells me. You see, there's been enough that has already been fulfilled that I have no doubt that that which he talked about that is still yet future will happen. Now, I preach this here this morning because I want you First of all, as a believer, if you're a believer here today, I want you to be encouraged by something, that God's Word is great, and you ought to give your life to reading it 
and to getting to know it and to study it and to meditate upon it because God's word is rich, it is awesome, it is powerful. If you don't give your time for it, you're shorting yourself. You don't have to answer to me for it, but I'm telling you, you're living a disappointed life. You need the Word of God. And I want to tell you something. Those promises God makes are real and are for you. But could I center my attention for just a moment for those that are here today that are unbelievers? You say, well, I, I don't know whether I'm an unbeliever or not. If you sit here today and you're uncertain, if right now you passed over and had a heart attack and you slipped into eternity, you're not sure whether you go to heaven or not. You have these doubts. You have these thoughts about, well, I I hope I'd go. I'm talking to you right now. You know, the Word of God makes it very clear. God's Word makes it abundantly clear that we can know Jesus. Simple. God has told us in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned. You're a sinner. You say, well, but, but this, no buts, no ands, no excuses. You and I are sinners before God. One sin cannot get you into heaven. You've broken God's law. That sin carries with it a penalty. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. But here's the beauty. Jesus took that penalty for you. Took that penalty for me. He died on the cross that you could have eternal life. And all that leaves for you is Romans 10, 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, that is, you agree with God, I'm a sinner, you agree with God that your sin will take you to hell, you believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins, and by faith you put all your confidence in Jesus and him alone to go to heaven. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God had raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And I love Romans 10, 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You say, Pastor, I don't don't know if I can do that. I I don't know if I'm ready. The Word of God tells you. Now, that same Word that tells you that you can know Jesus as Savior is the same Word that also tells us what will happen with those who will not trust Christ as Savior. I believe some of the saddest words that are given to us in the Bible are Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Look it up. The great white throne judgment. That judgment is for every person who has refused to accept Christ, who delayed to accept Christ, who thought they had accepted Christ, but they didn't. And they stand at that great white throne. And you know what's marvelous or or pretty amazing about this? The Bible says that God is going to open up the books. Now, you, you look at it, it's in the plural. Every person will stand before God and there will be books. How many books? I don't know. But there will be books that will be opened up. And one book called the Book of Life, which is the record of every person who has trusted Jesus as Savior. 
And those whose names are not written in that book of life, the Bible says they will be cast. Now, that's a strong word. They'll be hurled into the lake of fire. They say, hold on a second. What? How, how, do I, how do I know all this? The, the Bible tells us, I believe that one of the books that will be open, I, I, I can't be dogmatic, but I, I have to say that I believe this is going to be the case. One of those books that will be open is God's very Word. That person who stands there and doesn't see their name written in the Lamb Book of Life, they'll say, well, wait, wait a minute. I mean, I've lived a good life. No, no, the book will be open and it will show you you've coveted, you've lied, you've stolen, you've committed immorality, you've done this, and you will be condemned by your own actions. Now, I'm here to tell you, you can avoid all that. Today, you can place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Just like Christians around are being encouraged right now to place their faith and trust in the Word of God because it gives such promises, and God has magnified His Word. So I'm here to tell you that if you've never trusted Christ as Savior, today you can make that decision. Don't put it off. Don't say, well, there's another time. There may not be another time. Today is the day of salvation. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for you may not know what tomorrow will bring. Oh, the Word of God is great. God has done such wonderful things. As powerful as He is, as wonderful as His name attributes to all these wonderful things, God's not going to go back on the word that he has spoken. He's magnified his word above all his name. It has been fulfilled. It is being fulfilled. And it will be fulfilled. Can we pray, please? Father, thank you for this opportunity to get into the word of God. I just ask that you would help us here today. People who sometimes we feel like we're floating through life, but how good it is to anchor our soul on the Word of God. The promises of God are true. They're real. You're faithful to us. And everything you promise will be fulfilled to us as Christians.